Welcome to State of the Bay. I'm Ethan Elkind. And I'm Grace Wan. This is your weekly conversation about where we live. And what matters most. We are live. And we are local. Every Monday night. Right here on KALW San Francisco Bay Area. Welcome to State of the Bay. This is Grace Wan. Fentanyl is now the fastest growing cause of death for young people in California, and yet many of our young people are not aware of its risks. On tonight's show, I'll be talking with experts about how to educate our teens and young adults about fentanyl poisonings. We'll also hear from Joan Morris. She's a pet and wildlife columnist for the Bay Area News Group. You'll learn more about the creatures in your backyard. I certainly need help with some of those raccoons. But first, why can't San Francisco School District pay its teachers on time? Last week, San Francisco Unified Superintendent Matt Wayne announced a state of emergency to address persistent payroll issues that have been plaguing the district for nearly a year. Thousands of teachers and staff have reported problems with their paychecks and benefits following the rollout of a new piece of accounting software last January. In addition to the emergency declaration, the district announced that it was forming a 60-person command center focused on addressing the crisis. But San Francisco's teachers are fed up, and the union also took action last week filing an unfair labor practice complaint with the state. Here to help us why district employees haven't been paid and how the district plans to address the crisis is our favorite, Jill Tucker. She's the K-12 education reporter for the San Francisco Chronicle. Welcome back to State of the Bay, Jill. Oh, thank you so much. It's good to be here. Jill, so give us a little bit of background. Why did San Francisco Unify adopt this new payroll program in January? And what happened when they switched? Yeah, so, you know, they had a really good reason for adopting this new system or a new system. Uh, They used to do payroll mostly on paper, and we are in the year 2022. So uh, a while back, they um, basically approved a contract to bring in uh, a new system, uh, initial prize tag around $9 million, and they launched that in January. But pretty much the second they flipped that switch, they started having problems. And uh, that was everything from teachers not getting paid at all, Hmm. uh, some having problems with their health benefits. And over the next nine plus months, uh, we've seen hundreds, if not thousands of errors in paychecks, in benefits, uh, in in all sorts of things that have huge effects, obviously on staff. Um, everything from you know paying taxes coming mm-hmm. up, uh, and and all the other types of issues. You know, I mean, th- there were a lot of uh, teachers that were struggling to pay their rent or their mortgage because they didn't get their paycheck. There was one example of a principal writing a four thousand dollar check to a teacher to carry her over until her check was wow. fixed. So they have definitely been through the ringer with this system um, that, you know, I, I think we kind of expect bugs, right, mm-hmm. in, in new systems. But we are going on 10, 11 months now, and uh, and they don't seem to be getting better. Well, it's, I mean, we live in one of the techiest places in the country. So it's hard to wrap your head around the fact that, you know, a, a payroll system for the school district is a piece of software is just not working Who's the software provider and who's working to kind of help fix the glitches? Yeah, so initially the district contracted with SAS uh, to provide the software and Infosys to implement the software. Um, And essentially the district was responsible with shifting over all of the information. um, And, uh, you know, but obviously 
nothing really has been working. Mm-hmm. Um, so they now have hired a third contractor to come in at $2.8 million to try to unravel what's actually wrong. Um, after all these months, they haven't even really figured out what is wrong or how to fix it. it ultimately, uh, they said it's a lot more complicated than they thought. Mm. And it's not just one thing, right? It's not just one little line of programming. It's it's a lot of all of the systems from HR to finance, all having to talk to each other to pay teachers right. Again, it doesn't seem like hard. You know, we have like <laughs> companies with thousands and thousands of employees doing it every day. So it's a little bit disappointing to hear. Well, Jill, let's talk about the scope of the problem. How many teachers is it affecting um, our staff members? Every teacher in the district, every staff person in the district, or just a few of them? Well, there's 10,000 teachers and other employees in the district and a significant number Um, have had issues of one kind or another. They've had thousands of tickets, you know, expressing questions or problems or other types of things. It's a little hard to tell how many paychecks are wrong or benefits are wrong because a lot of those tickets are are trying to figure out if there is something wrong. Mm -hmm. Um, But definitely I'm hearing from some school folks that it's at least 25% or more who have had serious issues and errors with their paychecks or their benefits. Uh, One teacher recently um, went on maternity leave and they charged her for benefits for the baby that she didn't want or need. Mm. So she ended up owing, quote unquote, the district $5,000, according Ah. to the paycheck. So as you can imagine, with a newborn, that's super stressful. Mm -hmm. Um, So there have been a lot of these stories over the months, just one after another after another. There There are hundreds, if not thousands, of errors that the district still has to fix, um, not including all the ones that they have fixed in the last uh, 10 months. Well, we had Matt Wayne on the show a few weeks back and, you know, he was full of positivity and enthusiasm, as you would hope a educator and superintendent would. And he said that this was his one of his number one priorities was to resolve this issue. What has he done specifically to try to get to the bottom of it? Yeah, so so Matt Wayne came on on July 1st, and obviously this was a, an issue for several months before that. But I think to a certain idea, a certain degree, you know, there's sort of this idea like how could this actually be – like it can't be that complicated because mm-hmm. there are a 1,000 school districts in the state that are paying their employees right. on time, right? right. <laughs> so – and as you said, governments, you know, county governments, city governments, businesses all have figured out sort of the payroll thing. Um, but you know, he came in and, you know, it took him a little bit to get up to speed and he essentially, his first priority was making sure that the people who did not have pay or get the appropriate amount of pay were given a check immediately. So that took a bunch of red tape and bureaucracy to get through, um, to basically just cut a check on demand for salary. Mm -hmm. Uh, but he, he made that happen so that if somebody came in and said, look, I have, I didn't get paid, Mm -hmm. they could get a check within a couple of days and and make the rent and all of those types of things. So at the same time, he started looking into staffing. He tried to increase the staffing so that there were more people on the help desk solving these problems. That turned out to be uh, harder than uh, he thought um, just in terms of trying to hire people. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, he also brought in a co- the contractor to really try to unravel what is happening. Um, and all of that, 
you know, presumably helped, but certainly didn't fix anything. So now he has the uh, state of emergency. He has the command center. Uh, but when he announced it last week um, with uh, President Jenny Lamb of the school board, I asked them very specifically, give me your best guess of when this is going to be fixed and how much it's going to cost. And they declined to even guess. Uh, they said they didn't know. So we really are looking at something that is not going to be fixed in the short term. I think they're going to get faster at resolving tickets um, and trying to make everybody whole more quickly. But uh, whether they're going to fix this system before the year anniversary uh, doesn't look like it. Well, and as we said in the intro, um, the teachers union has taken to filing a complaint with the about unfair labor practices. I mean, if you don't get your check or if you're charged extra for benefits that you don't want, is the district doing anything to not just make you whole, but to give you like interest for the money that you didn't get paid on time or, you know, something to say like, hey, we're really sorry. And you we know you are out this money for a while. Yeah. So earlier um, in all of this, they did negotiate with the union to um, pay bank fees or overdrafts or other types of interest um, if if it was because they didn't get their, their paycheck. So they have been doing that as well. But to a certain degree, that's adding on to the responsibilities of the district in terms of paying people um, you know, making sure they get that extra cash and, you know, if they didn't, if they weren't able to make their, their payments. Um, but yes, yeah, so they are doing that. Um, but again, I think staff and teachers, if you, if you've been watching the protests mm-hmm. at vir- virtually every school board meeting, um, they are just done. And Jenny Lamb said she wasn't even going to try to ask for the patience of employees and teachers anymore because she knows they don't have any left. Yeah. And you, as you mentioned, they've been showing up at school board meetings. I mean, and they've been protesting at the school board offices, right, to try to keep this um, issue front and center, not just in front of the school board, but also to voters. Yes, definitely. I think there's, you know, it it really has been a top priority for the district but the fact that it's been going on 11 months i think you know a lot of a lot of the staff have lost faith they're frustrated they're angry and you know they want to make sure that the public sees that I think we need to bring in one of those um, engineers who maybe is no longer working at Facebook or Twitter to kind of step in and maybe help this problem. Um, So is it possible that the state is going to come in um, and try to help work this problem out or is that not going to be would that not be helpful at this point? Well, I know that the state has been offering guidance and support, but, um, you know, it's they're not sending software developers mm-hmm. or coders or whatever. Um, the reality is at this point, the, the consultants that came in about a month ago have said that at this point, they're not recommending ditching this program entirely and starting over. Mm-hmm. Um, but they do need to bring in people to unravel all the system issues um, figure out why the finance and HR departments are not communicating properly or, or what, what is actually happening that is causing all of the problems. It's, and again, it's not just one problem. It's, you know, it, it could be a substitute that um, all of a sudden isn't getting paid and doesn't have the right designation for their pay. Mm-hmm. It could be a summer school teacher that didn't get their summer pay um, you know, it's it's been, you know, somebody who had benefits one month, didn't have them the next month and had them the next month. So it's it's all sorts of issues. It isn't, 
you know, so so trying to track this down is a bit of a, like a detective mystery, I think. Well, you know, it's certainly there's complicated inputs to this payroll system. But as you pointed out, there are hundreds of school districts in California doing it every day. So one hopes that San Francisco can iron this out. So tell us a little bit about this command center, 60 staffers, and it's a mix of contractors and reassigned SFUSD staff. Who's in charge of it and who's going to be held accountable for it? Yeah, one of the um, top administrators is taking over the command center, um, The H- one of the HR top administrators, and it will include everybody from help desk employees, um, you know, people that are trying to solve these issues, to the contractors, to a variety of other staff members and people trying to work this out. Once they get fully ramped up, they expect it to have 60 people mm-hmm. uh, who will be assigned to this issue full time. Wow. And when will we be when will we know if everything's working? I, I mean, I think you've pressed for that information, but what would you view as successful, Jill, um, in well, resolving I think, this? <laughs> yeah, if I stop getting Twitter um direct messages or emails about it all every single day, <laughs> if not every single hour, I'll 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 be able to tell that it's getting better. <laughs> well that's that's a pretty good litmus test. As long as Twitter is around, you'll know. Um, yeah. <laughs> before we move on, you're gonna stay with us through the to the next segment. But before we move on to that, I wanted to ask you about the school board race. Um, London Breed, two of London Breed's appointees made it on through um, and were voted in to their job. But it looks like the third, um, Anne Shu, stands to lose her school board seat. Can you tell us a little bit about what's happening there? Yeah, so three seats are open um, this election, and the three appointees that the mayor appointed after the recall were all running. Um, the the top two, as you said, uh, secured their seats on election night, basically, because they had such a lead. But the third seat was up for grabs between Ann Shu, who's one of the appointees, and Alita Fisher, who is um, basically from the other side of San Francisco's political aisle with the progressives. She was anti-recall. Um, and, it, and it was too close to call. And, it, and mm. frankly, it still is. Mm-hmm. Um, Ann Shu was in the lead by a couple percentage points that night and slowly... Um, Alita has whittled that away. And just uh, a couple hours ago, the uh, lead flopped, flip flopped, Mm. and Alita uh, went into third and is leading by a couple thousand votes, which is the trend that we've seen since election night. So it, it, while, while it's still too close to call, the, Mm -hmm. the margin is too narrow. The trend looks like, uh, Anshu, the mayor's appointee will lose and Alita uh, will will win, but again, too close to call. Mm-hmm. And but if, and if Alita was to win it, as you said, it's it's not been called yet. Where does that leave the school board? Is it a school board divided between moderates and progressives, or is it um, leaning one way or the other? Well, it will be divided. Um, you know, fairly evenly. Um, you know, it, it Breed would have had four members, um, including her appointees and Jenny Lamb. Uh, the president who she appointed uh, in it when there was an opening a couple of years back. So um, this, you know, this gives an, a seat to a non-mayoral mayoral appointee. Um, but, you know, the board has really set the tone. Uh, and it seems that even the board members that are progressive or moderate on the board right now uh, that will continue um, have all bought into making student achievement, the priority and payroll. <laughs> right, and, right. Um, and, uh, and, but also, you know, really focusing on student achievement. Mm-hmm. Um, they've had governance training. 
they have vowed to stop micromanaging and let the superintendent do his job. Um, so it, it seems like they, while they may have political differences, they have all bought into the same vision of focusing, no more controversy, mm-hmm. end the chaos and lawsuits and recalls, right. yeah. and get down to the business of, of um, getting kids back on track after the pandemic. Well, I think that's much the relief of parents and um, people everywhere. So, well, thank you again for that update. And we'll have to wait to see what happens next on the payroll situation. Hopefully these teachers will get paid soon. We've been talking to Jill Tucker, the K-12 through education reporter at the San Francisco Chronicle about this. And we are very lucky because she's going to stay with us through the next segment. Um, Thanks, Jill, for that update. Sure thing. And coming up on State of the Bay, how parents and educators can help to increase awareness about youth fentanyl poisonings. We'll take your questions. That's right after this short break. Welcome back to State of the Bay. I'm Grace Wan. Young people have been experimenting with drugs for a really long time, uh, but the risks have never been higher. Fentanyl, a synthetic opioid 50 times stronger than heroin, is the fastest growing cause of death for young people in California. Just two milligrams, which is about the weight of a few grains of sand, can be lethal. That's right, lethal. It can kill you. Many teens and young adults are buying counterfeit prescription drugs off of social media and are not aware that these illicit pills may be laced with fentanyl. As they say in the industry, one pill can kill. At the end of October, Tony Thurman, the California's superintendent of public instruction, sent a letter to school officials statewide raising the alarm about California's growing youth fentanyl crisis. Joining me tonight to discuss the dangers of this powerful opioid and what needs to be done to prevent additional deaths, we're hearing from Jill Tucker. She's the K-12 education reporter for The Chronicle. Thanks again for joining us this hour, Jill. Sure, glad to be here. And we also have Ed Turnin. He's the co-founder of Song for Charlie, a family-run nonprofit dedicated to raising awareness about fentanyl poisoning. Welcome to State of the Bay, Ed. Thank you, Grace, for having me. It's a pleasure. And finally, we have Rana Hashemi. Hush- She's a Bay Area, Bay Area-based drug educator and founder of No Drugs. That's K-N-O-W Drugs. It's a youth overdose prevention and harm reduction por- program. Rana is also a PhD student in social psychology at Stanford. Welcome, Rana. Thank you so much for having me. We're going to open our phone lines up because we know that people, this is something that people want to talk about. Are you talking to your kids about fentanyl poisoning? What are you telling them? Have you experienced or had uh, witnessed one of these tragic deaths happen in your communities? What was the response? Give us a call. We're at 866-798-TALK. That's 866-798-8255. Or send us a message on Twitter at State of Bay or email us at stateofthebay at kalw.org. So, Ed, I wanted to start with you. I know this is a deeply personal topic, and I'd love to hear about Charlie. Tell me about Charlie. Right. Well, actually, today is uh, Mark's two and a half years since we lost Charlie, who died on May 14th, 2020. Um, Charlie was 22 at the time and a senior at Santa Clara University. Um, He's our youngest of three children. And he was just a month before he was going to graduate from college. So Mary and I often look at each other, my wife, Mary and I, and say, boy, we were almost at the finish line, right? When number three, almost there, graduated Mm -hmm. from college. And 
uh, we can take a deep breath and said, you know, we did the parenting thing. We did okay. And uh, um, Charlie went online to get a, a Percocet and he know he knew what Percocet was because he'd had a, a back surgery previously and had been prescribed to him. And um, so after driving from our home in Pasadena, where he'd been sheltering in place for the first couple months of COVID, uh, he drove back up to Santa Clara University and complained to his friends that his back was hurting. Uh, he went online um, looking for a Percocet. Uh, he was told what he was getting was a Percocet, uh, but it was not. It turned out to be one of these counterfeits. And uh, sadly, Charlie um, took that pill and talking talk to the doctors, they think, you know, he really never had a chance. He put that pill in his mouth and he was probably gone in about 15 minutes. Oh. Um, so he's one of these deaths by deception where, um, you know, part of this new problem that's happening out there is the people don't know what's in these pills and they're being passed off um, to unwitting drug consumers by people who are, are deceiving them into thinking there's something legitimate and safe and familiar like a Xanax or a Percocet when in fact they contain a very potentially uh, deadly opioid in fentanyl. I'm so sorry for your loss to you Thank and you. Mary. Um, before this happened, before um, Charlie was I mean, basically killed by fentanyl. Were you aware of this issue? Um, did you did it even cross your radar screen? It's a good question because, and we talked to a lot of parents in our situation. And two and a half years ago, the answer to that question was no. Hmm. Uh, we did not know that this was a problem. And a lot of the parents that we spoke to in those early days, uh, we describe it as having that WTF moment. Yeah. of figuring out what's this fentanyl mm-hmm. that I've never heard of. What do you mean fentanyl? Uh, and we start Googling and, and and researching. And so we did not know anything about the problem. And what sent us down our road was that we did a little research and quickly found out that people in the know were aware of it, like first responders and people in ERs uh, and, and school resource people. They were tra- starting to see this happening more and more, and they were really scared. Mm. Um, and so Mary and I looked at each other and said, well, there were some local news coverage and, and bulletins on the local DEA website and the medical examiner's website and page six of the Chronicle, Mm -hmm. but you could put that up for years and years and years. And 22 year old kids are not going to see that information, which led us down the path of trying to go directly to kids to warn them about these fake pills. Mm -hmm. Well, I just wanted to step back a little bit, Jill Tucker. I mean, tell us a little bit about what fentanyl is and we know it's an opioid, but um, what else do we know about this drug? Where is it coming from? Most of the fentanyl is, is coming from out of the country, um, South America, China, um, often going through South America, getting pressed, and then getting smuggled up into the United States. Um, it, it's typically not being manufactured here, but but we're seeing it um, across all communities. Um, I you know I've been talking to district attorneys and law enforcement, and they're basically saying every drug bust that they're making now, there's fentanyl. And in, in one case, uh, the Placer County DA. In, in a recent drug bust said there was enough fen- fentanyl to kill every single person in the county. Wow. And so we're really seeing large uh, amounts of fentanyl. Um, the availability of fentanyl is on the street. It's on social media um, and sold under as Percocet or Oxy or, or other types of things. Um, you know, they can be, they can look just like a pill you might've taken after 
um, you know, a surgery or, or something like that, um, or taken at a, a party at one point, even, you know, with some of these kids, um, they're pressed to look like other types of pills. Um, and, and yet they, uh, contain fentanyl, which is really difficult to, um, to, to measure, uh, in, in that small of a quantity to, to, to monitor, um, there's no control whatsoever. And so, you know, as, as, as some have been saying, you can take a quarter of a pill and, and die from fentanyl poisoning, whereas somebody else could take the rest of the pill and not die. Mm-hmm. Um, it can be, you know, so there's, there's just a lot of, um, unknowns about these pills that are out there when, when people are taking them, um, you know, and, and in many cases, like in, in, in Charlie's case, um, there is no Percocet or Oxy or anything at all. It's, it's only fentanyl and, and other things in the pressed pill. Why, why would one put fentanyl into this medication? Is it because it's cheap? Is it because of its, uh, its, how it makes people feel? I mean, it sounds like just a little bit of it is lethal. Like, why would you want to kill your customer? Jill. Well, and, and what officials are telling me is that they don't. They want uh, their customers to be addicted and mm. to come back for more. But if, if people die by accident on the way, then that's, you know, part of the deal, um, which is, is cruel and awful um, that, that people are getting tricked into buying something. But it is cheap. It's way cheaper to make uh, fentanyl than, than other drugs. Um, and, you know, and it, it's pervasive now uh, mm-hmm. across the country. Well, Ed, this isn't a matter. These kids are not going out and saying, I'm trying to find fentanyl. It's more of a, uh, the fact that kids are trying to are taking other drugs that happen to be laced with fentanyl. Is that what you found um, in your work? Yeah, you know, that's a lot like that death by deception that I was talking about, um, that that kids think they're buying something else from a dealer through Snapchat or or Instagram or something like that, um, think they're getting a Percocet and and don't know that they are getting a pill that's that's only fentanyl mm-hmm. and and other things. It doesn't have any uh, any Percocet in it at all. Um, and it's just it's you know ten to twenty thirty dollars a pill, and they can meet up with the dealer at a mall and hand the cash over, get a pill, and you know and and die. Right. Um, Ed, your nonprofit, Song for Charlie, you are trying to focus on bringing a better awareness to young people about fentanyl. Um, tell us a little bit about why you you think um, this is such a problem with younger people. Um, what's What are some of the factors there? There's a number of factors. Um, one is, as we all know, our young people are are very stressed out these days. Um, and so there's high levels of stress and anxiety. And many of these deaths that we're seeing are not really party deaths. Um, and you know, you never, you know, nothing's ever a hundred percent, right? So some kids are using these, these pills to party, but many of them are kind of self-medicating to seek relief mm-hmm. from stress, stress and anxiety. And so, and especially with the pandemic and now in the aftermath of the pandemic, um, our, our young people are reporting that they're feeling overwhelmed across the board. And so they have kind of been trained uh, into our culture um, to go for kind of a quick fix solution. Mm. You know, there's advertising on TV for medications. I mean, they just kind of learn that there's kind of a pill for everything. And this is the generation 
that we started medicating for learning differences um, with Ritalin and Adderall, for instance, and, you know, they get a Percocet when they get their wisdom teeth taken out. So they're just used to prescription pills uh, and they think they're safe and they think they know what they're doing. And that's what makes this so dangerous. Interestingly, you know, drug use, the adoption or the experimentation with drugs for teens is not really going up. It's staying kind of consistent. Mm -hmm. But while that the you know the the counterpoint to that is while we've got a situation where young people are not trying street drugs at an increased rate their their deaths are are hockey sticked yeah. they've completely skyrocketed because the behavior the frequency of the behavior trying drugs has not gone up but those who do engage in that behavior the behavior itself is way more risky than it's ever been in our history. Mm -hmm. So you've got this weird parallel of, of kids are not trying drugs at a faster rate, but those who do engage in that behavior are dying because the drug supply has never been more inconsistent and volatile and risky. It's just like Russian roulette. You know, I mean, taking your point of like, you don't know what you're going to get. So it could be a Percocet. It could be something else. This is terrifying. Um, we're, I'm just going to reintroduce the program. This is State of the Bay on local public radio, 91.7 KALW. Bay Area. I'm your host, Grace Wan. Tonight, we're raising awareness about the youth fentanyl crisis. We're talking to Ed Turnin. He's the co-founder of Song for Charlie, a nonprofit devoted to bringing out awareness of fentanyl poisoning in youth. Jill Tucker, she's the K-12 education reporter at the San Francisco Chronicle. And Rana Hashimi, she's the Bay Area drug educator and founder of No Drugs. That's K-N-O-W Drugs. What would you like our young people to be learning about fentanyl in schools? Have you lost a loved one or encountered fentanyl in your own life? What happened? Join us by calling 866-798-TALK. That's 866-798-8255. Or email us at stateofthebay at kalw.org or find us on Twitter. At, we're at State of Bay. Rana, I wanted to bring you into the conversation. Uh, you have a personal reason for coming to this work of trying to um, prevent fentanyl poisonings among youth. Tell us a little bit about your story. So um, I was one of those teenagers that received the messages to not use drugs. Drugs are dangerous. You will overdose. You become addicted. Um, and nevertheless, I was seeing this was a, I was a freshman in high school when I received, I think it was one day of, of health education and we'd focus on drugs. Um, and I remember them telling me this message. But at that point, I'd already begun reading books about psychedelic culture. I remember going on Facebook and seeing older teens in the school, you know, drinking on the weekends and there was smoking in the photos. And I didn't ever knew someone personally who had done drugs, but um, I wasn't. Um, not exposed to the culture around me. And as I'm putting together these messages of don't do drugs, drugs are bad, they're going to kill you and the people who do them um, become addicted or, or rotten. And then I'm seeing um, upperclassmen in my high school who were the president of the school or um, on varsity track using substances. I began to realize there was something missing from this conversation. And I came to the conclusion, like many of my peers, that the adults that were giving me drug education were just lying to me. <laughs> um, and I dismissed the whole message because what they were feeding me was not matching up with my reality. So I threw aside the warnings that I received about drugs. And um, eventually, I was curious. And I was like, I want to try this for myself. And so I began experimenting with alcohol and cannabis. 
And um, a lot of that was major trial and error. I remember the first time I drank, I matched the drinking patterns of a um, a large boy that was maybe three times my size. And I probably drank, you know, six to eight shots within a 30 minute time span and then spent the rest of the night throwing up mm-hmm. um, and blacked out. And um, coming out of that experience, I didn't really know what went wrong. And so I just kept trying that over and over again. Um, and there was no sort of, you drank too much much there is a safe or responsible limit for drinking while there isn't one for teenagers here's what it is for adults um the right dose and dosage um my substance use um interfered with my school and as i felt more and more disconnected from school um i also accelerated in what i was using um and so many of the drugs that are now lethal um in small doses today um i was experimenting with and i would have not been here if it was mm-hmm. if i didn't just m- miss the age of fentanyl. I was in high school a decade ago. Um, But by the time I was a senior in high school, the consequences of my substance use were quite apparent. I was losing relationships. Um, Friends would tell me that you're no longer with us. You know, even though we see you, you don't see us. Um, My parents were concerned and I um, began to realize that I needed to make some changes if I wanted to achieve any of my goals, um, if I wanted to be responsible for for a life that I really cared about. So I entered treatment, um, I went into recovery, and I really believed that the problem was that I had used drugs. And I had a lot of self-hatred, and I was angry at a lot of my friends. And at this point, I had several friends who had also overdosed. Um, from At this point, it was mixing drugs. That was really what was lethal. It would take a Percocet and alcohol, and their heart would stop mm. um, or not be able to regurgitate. And so I'd seen firsthand that drugs are really dangerous and that they weren't like, even though they exaggerated the risks um, and they weren't maybe effective in their education, they weren't lying to me. Um, And I went to UC Berkeley. I transferred in from community college and my first Friday night of my freshman of my junior year and for what was many of their freshman year, um, as in parents just dropped off their kids at college, moved them in and they were now on their own. I was walking home from the library because at this point I was no longer a party girl. I was a big nerd and I was really embracing that new identity. And I see that there was 26 paramedic call, um, um, cars lining the freshman dorms. And I go up to an RA and I was like, what happened? They're like, we got 26 um, first responder calls for alcohol poisoning. Mm-hmm. And this really blew my mind because I didn't think good kids did. I didn't think good kids did drugs. I didn't think that kids that went to Berkeley went did drugs. I was told that only bad kids did this. And so I was very confused and I began to like look around for the next month or so. And I really realized that at one point, all of these kids are making a decision about using a drug. And most of us are misinformed about drugs and we're fed just say no messages that didn't leave us prepared to what to do if we said yes, maybe, or sometimes. The difference was I was 15 years old when I started using drugs and a lot of these teens were 18 now when they were initiating into this culture. And I started to do some research about why was it that we were told just say no when there was information to keep us safe. Mm-hmm. Or that we, at one point, you know, we're being exposed to drug-related decisions and we had no information beyond just abstain. Right. And that's when I discovered the Safety First booklet that was written by Marsha Rosenbaum. Um, and the Safety First booklet, booklet was describing um, harm reduction drug education as a new way of, of preparing young people to live in a world where drug use exists. Mm-hmm. And I remember when I found that booklet, I was just bawling my eyes over it. 
because I was like, I had that moment that of that Ed mention of WTF, like there could have been another way. Mm-hmm. Like I was told exaggerations um, and like no safety information by choice. That was by design. And I didn't, if I had read a book that like safety first, or I'd received harm reduction education as a teen, maybe I wouldn't like as a teen who was more impulsive and more risk prone, maybe I wouldn't have abstained back then but I definitely would have kept myself safe. I definitely would have prevented overdose. I definitely could have helped my friends. Yeah. And again, I'm more of the extreme situation. And I definitely, if I was, if I knew about fentanyl, I wouldn't have been doing the drugs that I knew, was mm-hmm. that I was doing. Well, um, I mean, yeah. And it's, we're talking about how lethal fentanyl is as compared to, you know, in the past. I mean, when mm-hmm. I was in high school, people would maybe do pot, they would do this, they would do that, but it was never so lethal, like you never thought, I'm going to die from this, where I think what Ed and uh, Jill have pointed out and what you're pointing out is that if anything is laced with fentanyl, it's a huge risk for you. Um, so Ed, in, in picking up with Rana saying about like, just if kids know more, they can make better choices and better decisions. What is it that we need to be talking to kids about so that they are e- equipped to make better choices? Yeah, I, and I, I think Rana's right on. We say in our presentations that we say just say no but we spell it Mm k-n-o-w so we and i think we have to in the age of the internet and social media and cell phones um we have to acknowledge i mean i think every generation and i'm i'm an old guy right i'm i'm 60 um and so everybody looks back on their life says oh you know kids today right they think they're different but they're they're just the same well this generation is different. They learn differently. They, they're getting information differently because of social media, cell phones, the internet. So just say no and moralizing and judging is not going to work. And, and lying to them is not going to work because they are fact-checking you on their phone while you're talking to them. <laughs> so we If they're even very, talking to you, Ed, if they're even talking right, to you. Right? That's right. Yeah. And what experts have told us is that um, students today, young people today, um, are way more comfortable and receptive with the idea of don't tell me what to do. Give me the information and let me go figure out and do more research and learn on my own. So I, I really think that we're at a pivotal point in the the way we talk about drugs in America. And I think that's going to change. We need to completely reimagine it because of the the fact that the drug landscape has so radically changed. We used to talk about it when I was coming up in terms of like a journey, like you're going to start being exposed to drugs as you get older. And the risk is that you might get off on the wrong track. And if you do, you may get addicted to something down the line. And the ultimate risk is you accidentally overdose on your drug of choice 10 or 15 or 20 years down the line. Mm-hmm. Well, today's drug landscape is less like a, a path where you can get off on the wrong track. And where, of course, the other thing is most people age out, like Rana did at some, some way or another, of this risky behavior, either themselves or through intervention, right? And then some percentage struggle. I didn't get sober till I was 54. So I understand I'm a late, I'm a late bloomer. Mm-hmm. Um, so I understand meeting people where they are. Mm-hmm. The difference now is that we're losing kids at the very early experimental stage because the drug landscape is less like a journey and it's more like a minefield. 
Mm-hmm. And if, if you're going to step into a minefield, you need to know where the mines are right. or don't go in there. So that's kind of the way we frame it now with young people is it's not a moralizing judgment. It's an informational session, more of a public health warning. There's mm-hmm. really risky stuff out there. The drug supply has been kind of contaminated. It's really polluted with unpredictable stuff. Right. And so we're, we love you and you have to be more careful and more well-informed than ever. And I think that approach is is going to serve us better than the old just say no drugs are bad and people who use drugs are bad. Yeah. Because um, as Rana rightly pointed out, as soon as that lesson bumps up against a young person's life experience and doesn't match up, mm-hmm. you've lost them. Exactly. Well, we have a listener question. Um, this listener writes, some kids dying from fentanyl poisonings are toddlers. Is it enough to start talking about this in middle school or should we be having these conversations with much younger kids? Jill Tucker, do you have any advice about that and are school districts um, addressing this in any way? Yeah, you know, we're starting to see an increase in awareness in schools um, in California um, just this year, a lot more districts are starting to stock, stock Narcan, which is um, something that it's, in, it's a nasal spray that can counteract uh, fentanyl. Um, we're seeing a little bit of um, information about it in health classes and things like that. Um, but the reality is um, parents and, and folks that are, are, and students that are working on this are saying it's, it's definitely not enough awareness. They're not talking about it enough. Um, I think there's a lot of fear if you have Narcan on campus, for example, that that will encourage kids to take fentanyl or something like that, which of course is, is ridiculous. So um, we, we are seeing more awareness in schools. They are putting Narcan in middle schools as well. But uh, in most districts, uh, many districts, if not most, uh, we're not seeing that education going down into the middle schools yet. And even in the high schools, it's, it's fairly limited. Well, and I, one thing that's come up about fentanyl is that, I mean, you a person can take fentanyl, but also a person, like a lot of the first responders who respond to these overdoses, they can become ill in treating a fentanyl, a person who's taken fentanyl. I'm just curious about that, Ed. Have you come across that in your work? And is that something that you talk to um, kids about? It is. And on our website, we have a page called Facts About Fentanyl. Our website is songforcharlie.org. And we try to do myth busting because of what we just talked about. Um, you know, it is it is difficult, nearly impossible to overdose. Well, you cannot overdose from touching powdered fentanyl with your hands. Mm-hmm. Fentanyl has to get into the bloodstream. So we want to avoid hyperbole and hysteria um, we get questions like, is it safe for me to give mouth-to-mouth resuscitation if I think my my friend has overdosed on fentanyl? That's a problem. Mm-hmm. The answer is, it's safe. Please give your, your yeah. friend mouth-to-mouth resuscitation. Mm-hmm. You, so we have to do a really good job of kind of breaking through these myths that are out there. So skin absorption is, skin absorption is not a thing. Inhalation of, of airborne dust is you'd have to be exposed to it for a long time, long enough to know you're exposed to it and leave the room. Mm-hmm. Um, so those kind of inadvertent um, and, and secondhand exposures, casual exposures are extremely rare. We try to confirm them and, and we have not been able to confirm some of those. So um 
it is dangerous that one of the prime examples recently was the whole thing of rainbow fentanyl and Halloween candy. So, and again, you have to go beneath the surface a little bit. And I'm of a mind that it's time for us to retire the war on drug framework Mm. and start thinking about this as a business problem because our adversaries are business people and the war on drugs framing is, is not helpful. So if you think you say, well, why would people make colored fentanyl? Well, they're business people. They've kind of established a foothold in the market for counterfeit prescription pills for young people who are self-medicating and seeking relief. And so they use the blue M30s to look like Oxy or Percocet, or they stamp out fake Xanax. Mm. Now they've kind of got a foothold in that market. So what does a business person do? We diversify. So let's go over to this market segment over here, which is more the party market. Mm. So we'll position M30s, but we won't make them blue to look like medicine. We'll make them in colors to look more like, say, Molly. That's a real risk for teens and high school age kids. What drug dealers don't do is drop $40 pills in nine-year-olds' trick-or-treat bags. Right. That, because if you do that 10 times, you're out $400, and that is not how a drug dealer thinks. Mm-hmm. That is an act of terrorism. That's not an act of drug dealing. Mm-hmm. So I think it's really important to break this problem down as we think about how we're going to change the, the, the national conversation, really break this problem down to its component parts and just re- get to the facts and put the right resources and messaging where where they belong. Messaging for middle school and high school kids are very important. It's different than a talk you might give on a college campus. Right. Because they're faced with different risks and different scenarios. So, you know, we need to be able to break this down and, and, and kind of spin a lot of plates at the same time. Well, and talking about addressing kind of myths and stories that are out there, and I'm I'm not saying that this is a myth, but there's fentanyl testing strips. And Rana, I want to ask you, is that a popular thing for kids um, or young adults to be using, and does it work to test for fentanyl? Um, It's complicated. So test strips are not perfect. Um, And I just want to preface by saying any harm reduction strategy we use is not harm elimination. Mm -hmm. It's just harm reduction to varying degrees. Um, So with the fentanyl test strips, there's a lot of false positives. Um, And then there are also false negatives as well. And then you have the cookie issue, which is you may test one part of the pill, but not get the whole sample and in order to really test the full sample is a very multi-stage process that a person has to go through now if they are going to be using illicit substances that are at risk for contamination of fentanyl absolutely they should go through that Um, and i will also say that they should also carry narcan because fentanyl test strips are not perfect Mm -hmm. Um, they may miss a portion of the sample or they may not do it properly Um, and there may still be fentanyl contamination. So you want to make sure that you have Narcan with you. You want to make sure that you're not using alone. Um, And also the thing with Narcan is while it's very effective in reversing overdoses, it's not a comfortable experience. It's not something that I just stalking schools or having um, Narcan on hand that if someone can experiment with drugs and then Narcan themselves out of it, if in case they overdose, that doesn't really happen because Narcan, I believe, is an opioid antagonist, Mm -hmm. meaning that it reverses the overdose, reverses the signaling of the nervous system, which essentially puts someone into withdrawal, which is not a comfortable experience with opioids. Um, Most people who have gone through an opioid withdrawal know that. So 
I mean, you want to make sure you have no, yeah, sorry. No, no, I just, this is such good information that you're all giving us. And I'm fortunately the, this segment is coming to an end, but I wanted to thank all three of you for um, getting us more informed about this issue. And we've been talking about the rise in fentanyl poisonings among young, young people with Jill Tucker, the K through 12 education reporter at the San Francisco Chronicle, Rana Hashemi. She's the Bay area. She's a Bay area drug educator, educator and founder of no drugs and Ed Turnan. He's the co-founder of song for Charlie Thanks to all three of you for bringing this, um, bringing more attention to this issue. Thanks for having this Thank conversation you. with yeah. us. And if you want to learn more, there's um, two great websites to look at. There's Rana's No Drugs, that's K-N-O-W drugs.com, and Song for Charlie, C-H-A-R-L-I-E.org. And especially to you, Ed Turnin and your wife, Mary, I'm sure your work is a blessing to Charlie and um, a wonderful way to commemorate his memory. Thanks so much for that. God bless. Coming up after the break, we'll hear guest host Dr. Fred Pitt's interview with Bay Area wildlife columnist Joan Morris. Stay tuned. Our guest, Joan Morris, is a pet and wildlife columnist with the Bay Area News Group. A dear Abby of the animal kingdom, she's been solving wildlife mysteries and counseling her readers on all creatures big and small for the past 10 years. I would like to welcome the state of the Bay, Joan Morris. Welcome, Joan. Thanks. I'm glad to be here. So first question, what is the most, I will use the word outrageous, question you've been asked by your readers about animals, whether animals they own or animals they've not seen out in the world? Well, I get a lot of questions from people that um, I like to refer to as city folk. (laughs) I grew up on a farm and and we always teased people that didn't know about cows and such. But I got a letter once from a woman who thought that she had a giant white rat living in her backyard. And she tried everything to get rid of it, including putting out mousetrap. But it turns out that uh, her great white rat, her version of Moby Dick, was an opossum. Really? Yeah. She just didn't know. (laughs) (laughs) That's actually a great story. An opossum. Uh, Quick question for you. Thanksgiving coming up, and there are lots of wild turkeys around. In fact, I was just recently camping in Marin County, and our campground was kind of flooded with wild turkeys in the morning. How do we end up with so many wild turkeys in the uh, Bay Area? Turkeys are not native to California, and so they first came to the state with um, the gold miners and the settlers. Those were domesticated turkeys, and they didn't actually do too well in the wild. Mm -hmm. But um, apparently people like to hunt turkeys, so in the 1920s through the 1950s, the state started introducing turkeys to this uh, area for hunters. But again, they brought uh, in domesticated turkeys and they didn't do well. So in the 1970s, they started bringing in a different type of um, turkey, a wild turkey. Mm -hmm. And they really took off. And I always say that either California has a lot of not very talented hunters or the wild turkeys 
are extremely uh, fertile. So in urban areas, they they create problems mostly. I think people aren't used to seeing actual wild turkeys, and they're pretty big. I mean, they're tall. Mm-hmm. They can damage roost tiles and and dig up gardens in search of uh, insects. So a lot of people wow. don't like them in their yard. Is there a way to get rid of them if they're around? Yeah, turkeys, despite the reputation of being dumb, are actually pretty socially savvy anyway. If you mm-hmm. chase them out of your yard by using um, air horns or beating on pots and pans or spraying them with the hose, if you do okay. that once or twice, maybe three times, they get the message that uh, they don't want anything to do with you, so they'll stay out of your yard pretty much. One last question about the wild turkeys. I think I read somewhere that there are people who will hunt them and prepare them for Thanksgiving. They are one of the most hunted birds. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I wouldn't want to serve uh, a wild turkey. <laughs> okay. Unless you really like a uh, tough, gamey animal. Okay. I wasn't planning on it. I just read it and thought that was interesting. So <laughs> I had to ask the expert. So on the topic of birds, you recently wrote a clever strategy to get rid of noisy crows. Now, I'm from the Midwest, and I'm used to the sound of crows. I just kind of treat it as background noise. So what is your trick for getting rid of them? Yeah, a lot of people really don't like crows, which is a shame because they're incredibly intelligent birds. And if you ever do anything to a crow that upsets them, they have the ability to remember your face. And they will do bad things to you and your car. You always want to stay on their good side. But if you don't like them in your yard, they um, can drive off other birds that maybe you like better. Mm -hmm. So what you do is you get a fake dead crow and you hang it upside down somewhere in your yard. Um, But you need to do this in the cover of darkness. You don't want the crows to see you doing it. In the morning, the birds will, uh, crows will wake up. They'll see their dead comrade. They will have a little funeral for the bird. And then they will not come back to your yard for a very long time. Well, you just answered one of the great mysteries of my life. There was a farmer's market I used to go to as a child. And as you'd walk in the entrance, you'd see crows hanging upside down by the feet. And they looked like they were dead, but they were fake. Now I know why they were there. One quick question. Do scarecrows really work? No, they don't. Um, the crows are way too smart and they figure out that the scarecrow is of no risk or danger to them. Uh, coyotes in this area, depending where you're living, depending on what time of night, you hear them howling. What does the howling have to do with anything? Are they really howling at the moon? Is it a mating call? What is it? Um, they're just talking to each other primarily. Um, they're, uh, especially if there's a mated pair, they like to know where they're at, where the other one is at. And so they'll call back and forth to find each other. Uh, they don't howl at the moon, but, uh, it, it can appear to be doing that, but they're just, they're just talking. Interesting. I don't think I ever knew that coyotes communicate that way. It makes sense though. Interesting. Uh, another question. I used to live in the Presidio near the Golden Gate Bridge and we had 
bevy of wildlife that would just go around to the front door of my apartment building. One of the challenges I used to have is when I would come home late from one of my old ER shifts, there would always be about three or four skunks just kind of hanging around the front door of my <laughs> my townhome. And I never figured out a great way to get rid of them so I could get in the house without getting sprayed. Fortunately, I've never been sprayed by them. But if you get sprayed by them or your animal gets sprayed by them to remove the perfume that they love to donate. Um, as long as you move slowly and don't mm -hmm. um, make any don't make any sudden moves for them, mm -hmm. they're likely to just amble away. But if you are unfortunate enough to get sprayed or your dog gets sprayed, um, don't go by six cans of tomato juice. That's a myth. It does nothing. Uh, but you want to keep these products on hand so that you okay. can very quickly mix. It's one quart of 3% hydrogen peroxide, mm -hmm. a fourth a cup baking soda, and one teaspoon of liquid soap. And you mix that together and you bake the animal in it. So, John, I'm going to move on to some scarier creatures. It's scarier to me because I have a thing about spiders. What is the story with tarantulas that are, I know they're around Mount Diablo. Uh, I'm someone who I will say is spider phobic. There are moments of uh, Harry Potter that I won't watch because I can't watch giant spiders. So, are tarantulas venomous? They are venomous, but the uh, venom is of no consequence to humans. Uh, you you don't want to be bitten by one because it is a painful bite as any wild animal or any animal's bite would be. Mm -hmm. But they you won't die if you get bitten by one. And probably the thing that you need to look out for more than the bite is they're covered in these uh, fine bristles that are very sharp and barbed. And uh, when they get in a protective mode, they can fling those at you with their hind legs or if you touch it. You get it in your skin, it can irritate your skin. And it's like if you if you've ever handled a prickly pear and you don't I was just about see to say that. That's spot. exactly what it's like. Yes. Yeah. And they're really hard to get out and, and it, you know, it's painful. Well, Joan, this has really been interesting, but I'm afraid that's all the time we have for tonight. Uh if our listeners would like to read more about uh Bay Animals, you can find Joan's Pets and Wildlife column associated with the Bay Area News Group. And I would like to thank Joan Morris for being our guest tonight. Appreciate your time, Joan. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Well, that's State of the Bay this week. I hope you learned as much about raccoons, coyotes, and other animals as I did. I want to thank all of our guests and listeners this evening for being part of the conversation. If you have any questions or comments about anything you heard, email us at stateofthebay at kalw.org. We're off next week for the holiday. Happy Thanksgiving. But we'll be back on Monday, November 28th, so stay tuned. Tonight's show was produced by Kendra Klang and Jillian Emblad. It was engineered by David Kwan, and D Minor was our fantastic board operator. I'm Grace Wan. Good night. Thanks for listening.